Part 1. Understanding Boundaries Chapter 1. What is a boundary anyways? Stephanie sat in front of the fireplace drinking her cup of herbal tea and reflecting upon the evening. Her husband Steve had gone to bed an hour earlier, but the gnawing feeling in her stomach prevented her from joining him. In fact, the feeling was propelling her away from him. She was relieved when she had said that he was tired, for she didn't know what she would have done if he had wanted to make love to her. The feeling of relief scared her. She knew that it was not a good sign for their relationship. As she thought about the night, she found herself connecting her feelings not only with what had happened this evening, but with what had gone on in their relationship in the last few years. She was pulling away from Steve more and more. She knew that she loved him and always would love him. She just didn't know how to get past the lack of attraction to him. She had a negative feeling about their relationship that she could not shake. Get specific. What is it? She could hear her friend Jill asking her. Jill was much better at sorting out thoughts and feelings than Stephanie. As she sorted through answers to Jill's questions in her mind, the cancer came surprisingly quick in a movie-like collage of memories. Times and conversations she and Steve had had passed through her mind as she, though she were a detached observer. First, she recalled this evening when he had ignored her wishes for where they would go to dinner. And several during the meal, he had ignored what she was saying. It was as if he did not really hear her. Then there was their vacation. She wanted a nice, quiet mountain setting where they could be alone together, and he wanted a big city with lots of action. As usual, they had followed his wishes. Then there was her desire to go back to school and finish her degree. They had agreed on that when she had dropped out of college her senior year to put him through law school. But every time she brought it up, he explained why it was not a good time right now for them. Stephanie had a hard time understanding that. What he really was saying was that it was not a good time for him. Many other scenes came to her mind, but that phrase, for him, seemed to encapsulate all of them. Their relationship was more for him than it was for them or even for her. As she thought about it, her detachment gave way to negative feeling. Get a grip, she told herself. Love is filled with sacrifice. But as much as she tried to see herself sacrificing for love, she felt as if she were sacrificing a lot, yet experiencing very little love. With that thought, she stared into the fire a while longer, gulped her last sip of tea, and headed for bed, hoping that Steve would be asleep. The importance of boundaries. How had Stephanie, after several years of marriage, found herself in such a state? What had gone wrong? She and Steve had begun so strong. He was everything she always wanted. Kind, strong, successful, and spiritual. Steve seemed to embody it all, but as time went on, their relationship lacked depth and intimacy. She could not understand how she could love someone so much and experience such little love along the way. The issues are different for many couples, but the perplexity is often the same. One spouse feels something is missing, but she can't figure out what it is. She tries to do the right things, she gives, sacrifices, honors the commitment, and believes best. And yet, she doesn't achieve intimacy, or worse than that, she doesn't avoid pain. In some cases, the confusion hides itself behind the simplistic explanations that problems such as addiction, irresponsibility, control, or abuse provide. If he just weren't so controlling, or if she would just stop spending, partners think that they can explain why their relationship lacks intimacy by the presence of the problem. They're surprised to find that even when the problem goes away, the person with whom they can't connect or find love remains. In other cases, 
There may be no problems, but the marriage does not live up to the promise that one or both of the partners had in the beginning. Commitment may be strong, but love, intimacy, and deep sharing are not present. Why does this happen with two people who are so committed to the relationship? In our work with couples over the years, we have observed that while many dynamics go into the producing and maintaining of love, over and over again, one issue is at the top of the list, boundaries. When boundaries are not established in the beginning of a marriage, or when they break down, marriages break down as well. Or, such marriages don't grow past the initial attraction and transform into real intimacy. They never reach the true knowing of each other, and the ongoing ability to abide in love and to grow as individuals, and as a couple, the long-term fulfillment that, that was God's design. For this intimacy to develop and grow, there must be boundaries. So, with that in mind, in this chapter, we are going to take a look at the big picture to look at what boundaries are. We will give an introductory course for those of you who have never read our book, Boundaries, and a refresher course for those of you who have. What is a boundary? In the simplest sense, a boundary is a property line. It denotes the beginning and the end of something. If, for example, you go down to the county courthouse and look up your address, you can probably get a plot map showing your property lines. You can see where your property begins and your neighbor's ends, a prerequisite for being good neighbors to each other. Ownership. If you know where the property lines are, you can look up who owns the land. In physical property, we say that Sam or Susie owns the land and the things on the land. In relationships, ownership is also very important. If I know where the boundaries are in our relationship, I know who owns such things such as feelings, attitudes, and behaviors as well. I know to whom they belong, and if there is a problem with one of those, I know to whom the problem belongs as well. A relationship like marriage requires each partner to have a sense of ownership of himself or herself. I, Dr. Cloud, witnessed this lack of ownership in a couple recently. Caroline and Joe came in for marriage counseling saying that they could not stop arguing with one another. When I asked her what the arguments were about, Caroline replied, He's just so angry all the time. He gets so mad at me and it really hurts. He's just so mean sometimes. I turned to Joe and I asked, Well, why do you get so mad? Without having to think for a second, he replied, Because she always tries to control me in my life. Sensing that this could become a game of ping pong, I looked to the other side of the table and asked Caroline, Why do you try to control him? Again, in a millisecond, she replied, because he's so into his own things that I can't get his attention or his time. Each of them blamed their own behavior on the other person. Sensing that they might see the humor in what they were doing if I continued, I asked, why do you not pay attention to her? Because she's so nagging and controlling. I just have to get away from her. He instantly shot back. Trying one last time to have someone take ownership for his or her own behavior, I asked, what? I asked her why she nags. Without missing a beat, she answered, because he won't do anything I want. I wanted them to see my head moving back and forth whenever I asked the question, why do you? The answer given was always something about the other person. The ball of ownership was hit back over the net each time it landed in one of their courts. Neither one ever took personal ownership of his or her behavior. In their minds, their behavior was literally caused by the other person. I longed for Joe to say, for example, I get angry at her because I'm too immature to respond to her more helpfully. I'm deeply sorry for that, and I need some help. I want to be able to love her correctly no matter what her behavior is. Can you help me? This response would be music to a counselor's ears. 
But with this couple, we were a long way from the symphony. I felt as if I were in the bleachers in the Garden of Eden when God confronted Adam after he had sinned. Adam had chosen to disobey God's command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There was no doubt about it. Adam had done it. When God asked what happened, he got the same lack of ownership we saw with Caroline and Joe. Who told you that you were naked? God asked. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, Adam said, and I ate it. Adam blamed his behavior on his wife, just like Joe, just like all of us. I did blank because of you. And God ran into the same problem with Eve. When he asked her about her behavior, look what happened. What is this you have done? God asked. The serpent deceived me, and I ate, Eve replied. Eve's behavior and disobedience get explained away on the account of the serpent, if it weren't for the serpent. In essence, Caroline and Joe, like Adam and Eve, and like you and me, were saying, if it were not for you, I would be a more loving and responsible person. So the first way in which clarifying boundaries helps us is to know where one person ends and the other begins. What is the problem and where is it? Is it in you or is it in me? Once we know the boundaries, we know who should be owning whichever problem we are wrestling with. For example, Joe was not taking ownership of his feelings and Caroline of her behavior. This issue of ownership is vital to any relationship, especially marriage. Responsibility. Boundaries help us to determine who is responsible for what. If we understand who owns what, we then know who must take responsibility for it. If I could get Joe to see that his reactions were his problem and not Caroline's, then I could help him to take responsibility for changing his reactions. But as long as he blamed Caroline for his reactions, then she had to change for his reactions to change. In his mind, if she were not so controlling, for example, he would not be so angry. If we can discover who is responsible for what, we have an opportunity for change. For the first time, we are empowered. When Caroline got a sense that she was responsible for the misery she thought Joe was causing, she was empowered to change that helpless, powerless feeling of misery, no matter what Joe was doing. Once she began to take responsibility for her reactions to Joe, she could work on changing them. For example, she learned not to let his anger affect her and to respond to him more directly. She also learned to stop nagging him to do things and instead to ask him to do something and give him choices. Responsibility also involves action. If something is going to happen, it's going to happen because we take action. We need to change some attitudes or behaviors or reactions or choices. We must actively participate in the resolution of whatever relational problem we might have, even if it's not our fault. Once Joe saw his anger was his problem and not Caroline's, he took responsibility for it. He learned he was not going to be not angry because Caroline changed. He was going to be not angry because he grew and responded differently to what she did. He learned what Proverbs teaches us, that a lack of boundaries and anger go hand in hand. Like a city that is broken into, and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Proverbs 25, 28. He learned not to react, but to think through his choices, to find where his anger and feelings of being threatened by her were coming from. Many other new things became a part of his growth, but they all began with boundaries, each clarifying what he had to take responsibility for. Each spouse must take responsibility for the following things. Feelings, attitudes, behaviors, choices, limits, desires, thoughts, values, talents, and love.
Responsibility tells us we are the ones who must work through our feelings and learn how to feel differently. Our attitudes, not those of our spouse, cause us to feel distressed and powerless. How we behave and react is a part of the problem, and we have to change these patterns. We allow ourselves to get pushed beyond certain limits and then become resentful or powerless. We do not turn desires into accomplished goals, or we do not deal with our sick desires. Responsibility empowers us to have a good life. To give Adam and Eve the responsibility God gave them was to empower them to have all the life, to have the life all of us desire. One filled with love, wonderful surroundings, and a lot of opportunities to use our abilities and talents. He gave them the ability and the opportunity to make the life they chose. When they did not choose in a life-giving way, they also bore the responsibility for that choice as well, just as we do. But the good news of boundaries is that God's plan for responsibility has not changed. We are not at the mercy of our spouse's behavior or problems. Each spouse can act both to avoid being a victim of the other spouse's problems and, better yet, to change the marriage relationship itself. Later in this book, we will show you how to change your marriage for the better, even if your spouse is not interested in changing. But the process always begins with taking responsibility for your own part in the problem. Freedom. His irresponsibility is making my life miserable, Jen began. She then went on to tell me a terrible story of how her husband had successfully avoided adulthood for many years at her expense. She had suffered greatly at the hands of his behavior, both financially and sexually. As I listened, though, I could see that her deep sense of hopelessness kept her in prison. I could see countless ways she could be free from her husband's patterns of behavior. She could make numerous choices to help both herself and the relationship. But the sad thing was that she could not see the same choices that were so clear to me. Why don't you stop paying for his mistakes and bailing him out? Why do you keep rescuing him from the messes he gets himself into? I asked. What are you talking about? Jen asked, alternating between muffled sobs and scornful expression. There's nothing I can do. This is the way he is, and I just have to live with it. I could not tell if she was sad about what she perceived as a hopeless case or angry with me for suggesting that she had choices. As we talked further, I discovered an underlying problem that kept Jen from making such choices. She did not experience herself as a free agent. It never occurred to her that she had the freedom to respond, to make choices, to limit the ways his behavior affected her. She felt that she was a victim of whatever he did or did not do. This was the same problem troubling Joe and causing him to react so severely to Caroline. She would attempt to control him, and he would experience her attempts at actually controlling him. In reality, Caroline had no control over Joe whatsoever, and he had understood that. And had he understood that, he would not have been so reactive to her. He did not see himself as a free agent. God designed the entire creation for freedom. We were not meant to be enslaved by each other. We were meant to love each other freely. God designed us to have freedom of choice as we responded to life, to other people, to God, and to ourselves. But when we turned from God, we lost our freedom. We became enslaved to sin, to self-centeredness, to other people, to guilt, and to a whole host of other dynamics. Boundaries help us to realize our freedom once again. Listen to the way that Paul tells Galatians to set boundaries against any type of control and become free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. 
Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 Jen felt herself enslaved by her husband's patterns of behavior and did not see the choices available to her. Joe saw himself as subject to Caroline's nagging attempts to control him, but God tells us not to be subject to any kind of enslaving control at all. When someone realizes the freedom he or she has from a spouse or anyone else, many options open up. Boundaries help us to know just where someone's control begins and ends. As with the property lines above, so it is with relationships. Just as your next door neighbor can't force you to paint your house purple, neither can any other human being make you do anything. It violates the basic law of freedom that God established in the universe. For love to work, each spouse has to realize his or her freedom, and boundaries help define the freedom we have and the freedom we do not have. Marriage is not slavery. It is based on a love relationship deeply rooted in freedom. Each partner is free from the other and therefore free to love the other. Where there is control or perception of control, there is not love. Love only exists where there is freedom. The Triangle of Boundaries Three realities have existed since the beginning of time. One, freedom. Two, responsibility. And three, love. God created us free. He gave us responsibility for our freedom. And as responsible free agents, we are told to love him and each other. This emphasis runs through the whole Bible. When we do these three things, live free, take responsibility for our own freedom, and love God and each other, then life, including marriage, can be an Eden experience. Something incredible happens when these three ingredients of relationship work together. As love grows, spouses become more free from the things that enslave self-centeredness, sinful patterns, past hurts, and other self-imposed limitations. Then they gain a greater and greater sense of self-control and responsibility. As they act more responsibly, they become more loving. And then the cycle begins all over again. As love grows, so does freedom, leading to more responsibility and to more love. This is why a couple who has been married for 50 or more years can say that the marriage gets better and better as time goes on. They become more free to love themselves, to be themselves, and as a result of being loved, and the love relationship deepens. One woman said it this way, Before I married Tom, I was so caught up in my own insecurities and fears to really even know who I was. I have been so blessed by the way he loved me. When I was afraid or irresponsible in the early years, he was patient, not reactive. He was strong enough to love me and require more of me at the same time. He did not let me get away with being like I was, but he never punished me for how I was either. I had to begin to take responsibility for working through my barriers to love. I could not blame him for my faults. As he loved me more and more, I was able to change and let go of the ways that I was. The really neat thing was that as I talked to this woman's husband, he said basically the same thing. Both had become a catalyst for growth and for the other and for the relationship as well. In this description, we can see the three legs of the triangle. The spouses were free not to react to the other. They each took responsibility for their own issues and they loved the other, the other person, even when he or she did not deserve it. She worked on her insecurities and changed them, and as they were both free from the other, they gave love to each other freely, and that love continued to transform and produce growth. Remember, where there is no freedom, there is slavery. Where there is slavery, there will be a rebellion. Also, where there is no responsibility, there is bondage. Where we do not take ownership 
and do what we are supposed to do with our own stuff, we will be stuck at a certain level of relationship and we will not be able to go deeper. Love can only exist where freedom and responsibility are operating. Love creates more freedom that leads to more responsibility, which leads to more and more ability to love. Protection. The last aspect of boundaries that make love grow is protection. Think of your house for a moment. You probably have some protection around your property somewhere. Some of you have a fence with a locked gate, for example, to protect your property from trespassers. Some people, if they were able, would come in and steal things that mattered to you. And Jesus said, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under, your, under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. You need to be careful and protect yourself from evil. Some of you do not have a fence, but you lock your doors instead. However you do it, you have a protective boundary available would help when needed to keep bad guys out. But your locked gate or door is not a wall either. You need to be able to open the gate or door when you want to invite good guys into your property or into the house. In other words, boundaries need to be permeable. They need to keep the bad out and allow the good in. As it is with your house, so it is with your soul. You need protective boundaries that you can put up when evil is present and can let down when danger is over. Regina had had enough. Married to Lee for 19 years, she had tried to be loving until it almost killed her emotionally. Lee had a long-standing problem with alcohol and also with anger. Sometimes the two problems would come together and make life unbearable for her. In addition, he would pick at her in an emotionally devastating way with biting, sarcastic remarks. Nice dress, didn't they have it in your size? was the kind of thing he would say. He would not help her with the kids either, seeing, as, seeing it as the wife's job. She was an adapting, loving person who had always tried to avoid conflict and to win people over with love. When people were mean, she would become nicer and try to love them more. The problem with Lee was that her love only gave him more and more permission to be unloving himself. His drinking and other behaviors continued to get more and more pronounced, and she finally could not take it anymore. She discovered that it was not good to be the silent sufferer. Some people at her church encouraged her to speak up to Lee about how his problems affected her. She took some courses on assertiveness and began to confront him. Sadly, Lee did not listen. Sometimes he ignored her confrontations. At other times, he apologized without changing. And at still other times, he grew angry and defensive. But at no time did he take her words to heart, see how he was hurting her, and change. Regina finally gave Lee a choice to own his problem and take responsibility for it or to move out. She would no longer allow his drinking and anger to affect her and the children. She would take protective steps to guard the good and not let evil destroy it. At first, he did not believe her, but she stood her ground. Finally, he moved out. Had he not done so, she might have moved out herself or gone to court. But seeing for the first time that his behavior had consequences, Lee took his problem seriously. He obtained some help and turned his life around. He and Regina were reconciled a year and a half later and their marriage was saved. Regina was happy that they were back together and that the marriage was doing well. This was a fruit of the protective stance that she had so painfully taken. She had set some limits and boundaries to protect herself, her children, and ultimately her marriage from a destructive cycle. Self-control. There is a lot of misunderstanding about boundaries. Some people are against boundaries because they see them as selfish. Other people actually use them to be selfish, but both are wrong. Boundaries are basically about self-control. 
a client once said to me, I, I set some boundaries on my husband. I told him that he could not talk to me that way anymore and it did not work. What's it, what do I do now? What you have done is not boundaries at all, I replied. What do you mean? It was your feeble attempt at controlling your husband and that never works. I went on to explain that boundaries are not something you set on another person. Boundaries are more about yourself. My client could not say to her husband, you can't speak to me that way. This demand is unenforceable. But she could say what she would or would not do if he spoke to her in that way again. She could set a boundary on herself. She could say, if you speak to me that way, I will walk out of the room. This threat is totally enforceable because it has to do with her. She would be setting a boundary with the only person she can control, herself. When you build a fence around your yard, you do not build it to figure out the boundaries of your neighbor's yard so that you can dictate to him how he is to behave. You build it around your own yard so that you can maintain control of what happens to your own property. Personal boundaries do the same. If someone trespasses on your personal boundaries in some way, you can take control of yourself and not allow yourself to be controlled or hurt anymore. This is self-control. And ultimately, self-control serves love, not selfishness. We hope that when you take control of yourself, you will love better and more purposefully and intentionally so that you and your spouse can have the intimacy that you desire. Examples of boundaries. In the physical world, many boundaries define property and protect it. Fences surround homes. Homes are built in gated communities. Most homes have doors and locks. In the old days, people even had moats with alligators. In the immaterial world of souls and relationships, boundaries are different. You would look funny with your moat around your heart, and the alligators would require a lot of maintenance. So God has equipped us with special boundaries for interpersonal realm. For the interpersonal realm. Let's look at some words. <clears throat> the most basic boundary is language. Your words help define you. They tell the other person who you are, what you believe, what you want, and what you don't. Here are some examples of words being used as boundaries. No, I don't want to do that. No, I won't participate in that. Yes, I want to do that. I will. I like that. I don't like that. Your words or lack of them define you to another person. Remember Stephanie, the wife in the opening illustration of the chapter, who was pulling away from her husband's teeth? Stephanie slowly lost ground on her property by not saying what she wanted and what she did and did not like about how Steve was acting. Her silence was like a trampled down fence. Truth. Truth is another important boundary. God's truth and principle provide the boundaries of our existence. And as we live within this truth, we are safe. Here are some truths that help define the structure of how we are to relate. Do not lie. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Give to others. Love one another. Be compassionate and forgive. As we structure our relationships around God's eternal truths, our relationships succeed and thrive. When we cross these boundaries, we lose the security that truths provides. In addition, being honest and truthful about ourselves and what is going on in a relationship provides boundaries. Not being truthful to one another gives a false impression of where we are as well as who we are. For example, when Regina was adapting to Lee's hurtful behavior, she wasn't being honest with him about what was really going on inside of her. She was acting happy and loving, but in reality she was miserable inside and hurting deeply. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, 
Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. If we are not being truthful with each other, our relationship goes into hiding. Then, instead of one real relationship, we have two relationships, the outside relationship, which is false, and the inside, hidden relationship, which is true. Intimacy is lost, and so is love. Love and truth must exist together. Consequences When Regina had had enough, she finally set the boundary of consequences. She said she would no longer live with Lee while he drank. The consequences defined the boundary of what she would allow herself to be exposed to. Where her words, where her words failed to communicate, her actions did. She kicked him out. God has given us the law of sowing and reaping. See chapter 2 for a fuller explanation of this law. To communicate what is acceptable and what is not. If we just use words, others sometimes do not get the message. In fact, people in denial are deaf to words of truth. They only respond to pain and loss. Consequences show where our boundary line is. Some spouses need severe consequences like separation. Others need less severe ones like the following to define important boundaries. Canceling a credit card. Leaving for the party alone when the perpetually late partner doesn't come home by the agreed upon departure time. Going ahead and eating dinner when a spouse is late for the thousandth time. Ending an abusive conversation. Or refusing to bail someone out of a jam because of perpetual irresponsibility, like overspending or not completing work on time. Emotional distance. Sometimes one of the partners in a hurtful relationship is not willing to change. The partner continues to do hurtful things, or sometimes the spouse may have betrayed a trust or had an affair. And even though he has repented, not enough time has passed for the spouse to prove himself trustworthy. In these situations, trust may not be wise. But it is prudent to continue to interact in the relationship and to work on the problem out. In such instances, one partner might have to follow the advice of Proverbs to avoid further injury. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Guarding one's heart might include saying the following, I love you, but I don't trust you. I can't be that close until we work this out. When you can be kind, we can be close again. When you can show you are serious about getting some help, I will feel safe enough to open up to you again. I can't share deep feelings if you are going to punish me for them. In these instances, the couple has a commitment to work on things, along with the wisdom to guard the heart with some emotional distance until it is safe and prudent to move closer. This prevents further hurt and deterioration of the relationship. We caution you, however, that you must take this stance only with a pure heart. Impure hearts use boundaries to act out feelings such as revenge and anger. Because none of us is pure, we have to search our motives for establishing boundaries to make sure that they serve love and not our impure motives. Using distance or withdrawal of love, for example, to punish the other is a sign that we are setting boundaries not to resolve the conflict, but to get revenge. Physical distance. Sometimes when all else fails, people must get away from each other until the heart can stop. Distance can provide time to protect, time to think, and time to heal, and time to learn new things. In severe cases, protective separation prevents actual danger. Physical distance can be minimal or more significant. Removing oneself from an argument or a heated situation. Taking some time away from one another to sort things out. Moving out to get treatment for an addiction. 
separating from physical abuse or substance abuse, or moving into a shelter to protect children. These boundaries protect the marriage and the spouse from further harm. As Proverbs tells us, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. Physical distance at times provides space for healing, as well as safety to preserve partners and the marriage itself. Although usually a last resort, it is sometimes the thing that saves. Other people. Sandy could not stand up to Jerry alone. Every time she tried to set boundaries with him, she folded in the heat of conflict. She did not yet have the spine she needed. He was always able to overpower her. I suggested that she talk about certain issues with him only while I was present. At first, she saw that as a cop-out and would not give herself permission to do it. But after a few more failures, she agreed that she was just unable. Sandy limited herself to discussing the difficult topics only in their counseling sessions. Slowly, she was able to depend on me to monitor the, and intervene when Jerry got out of hand. As that happened, the boundaries I provided in structuring the sessions gave the marriage a new path, and he began to respond. Later, she went to her support group for the rest of the structure she needed to gain her own boundaries. Other people were the spine that she did not have in the beginning. Slowly, she internalized their care, support, teaching, and modeling. God has always provided help from his family to those who need it. Here are some ways. Use a third party to help you resolve conflict. Use a third party to help you protect and support yourself. Use a group for healing and strengthening. Use others to teach you boundaries. Use counselors, friends, or pastors to provide the safe place to work on difficult issues. Use shelters in extreme situations. Take care, however, that other people are helping and not hurting. Other people may be unhelpful if they, if they help you hide from conflict instead of trying to resolve it. We will cover this point in Chapter 11 on protecting your marriage from intruders. Time. Time is another boundary that structures difficulties in relationships. Some people need time to work out a conflict or to limit the conflict itself. Give yourself an allotted time to talk about certain things. We will discuss our budget for one hour, and then we will leave it alone until next week. Set a certain time to work on a particular issue instead of discussing it in the heat of the moment. Or establish reasons for certain goals. This summer, we will work on our communication goal, and in the fall, work on sexual difficulties. Just as the physical world has difficult kinds of different kinds of boundaries, the interpersonal world has different ones as well. Just as sometimes offense is appropriate and a door is not, sometimes confrontation and truth are important and physical distance is not. Later in this book, in part three, we will guide you through how to know when to do what. Stephanie. Stephanie, with whom we opened this chapter, was not experiencing the more serious problems with Steve that some of our other couples have revealed. She was suffering, however, from the emotional distance that being on the wrong end of one-sided relationship creates. In some ways, her story is more revealing of the need for good boundaries in marriage. She was unhappy in the face of no overt problems. This can sometimes be the worst kind of misery. Her story has a good ending, and it incorporates all of the principles we have looked at in this chapter. Stephanie first figured out where she ended and where Steve began. When she did, she found out that there was really very little of her at all in the marriage. She had adapted to him and had compiled complied with his wishes so much that she barely existed at all. She could no longer even remember what it felt like to be herself. 
Her desires for school and some meaningful work of her own were long forgotten as he pressured her to continue to go on as they were. And she had given in over and over until her until she lost herself. When she thought about what was hers and what was his, she realized that she could not blame him for her loss of herself. She was the one who had complied for his wishes. She was the one who was afraid of conflict and, and so chose to adapt to what he wanted. She had to take ownership of her passivity. At this point in her journey, Stephanie made a mature decision. She took responsibility for her own misery and began to work on it in the relationship. Instead of doing what many compliant people do when they wake up and find themselves lost, she didn't leave the relationship to find herself. Many times a marriage will break up as the passive spouse decides she wants to have a life of her own and she leaves. Sometimes she may even call this move getting some boundaries. Nothing could be further from the truth. Boundaries are only built and established in the context of relationship. To run from a relationship as the first step of boundaries is not to have boundaries at all. It is a defense against developing boundaries with another person. The only place boundaries are real is, in, is within a relationship. Stephanie did not run. She took ownership of all of her feelings, attitudes, desires, and choices, and then she took them to Steve. And they had lots of conflict at first, but in the end, he grew as well. Steve found out that life was not about just him, and that if he continued to live that way, he was going to lose some things very important to him like closeness with Stephanie. As she took responsibility for her life, he was forced to take responsibility for his own, and the marriage improved. They both owned their sides of the equation. Stephanie saw that she was free from Steve, that the slavery she had always felt was coming from inside of her. She expressed her feelings and opinions more. She would not just give in to Steve's desires immediately. When he did not hear her, she let him know, and Steve learned to love her freedom and relish it. He began to feel attracted to her independence instead of threatened by it. As they did these things, love grew. And they grew as individuals as well. But it had all started with Stephanie doing some serious boundary work, defining herself, taking ownership and responsibility for what was hers, realizing her freedom, making some choices, doing the hard work of change in the relationship and not away from it, and learning to love instead of comply. Stephanie's relationship with Steve grew more and more intimate. They learned how to be separate people who were free to love each other. The missing ingredient all along had been a deep sense of intimacy, something the Bible refers to as knowing someone. But without clear boundaries, they could not know each other. And without knowing each other, they could not truly love each other. As they became more defined, they became two people who could love and be loved. They began to know and enjoy one another. They began to grow. This is what we would like for you and your spouse. In this book, we will help you become better defined, more free and responsible, and more in a position to love and be loved. This is the high calling God created marriage to be. Setting Boundaries with Yourself, Chapter 3 Lynn was weary of Tom's chronic lateness in coming home from work. Because he owned his own business, he was often delayed at work. It seemed like such a little thing, but as time passed, Tom's tardiness became a big problem. Lynn would arrange her day to have dinner and the kids ready on time, and she wanted Tom to be home on time as well. Reminding, nagging, and cajoling Tom had been ineffective. 
Tom would either defend himself by saying, well, you don't appreciate the work I have to do to put food on the table, or he would simply deny the problem altogether by saying, it doesn't happen that often, you're overreacting. Lynn ran out of strategies. Finally, after thinking through the problem with some wise women friends, Lynn came up with a two-point plan. One night, as the couple climbed into bed, she told Tom her plan. Sweetheart, she said, I want to apologize to you for my crummy attitude about dinner time. Tom almost fell out of bed. He was eager to hear her apology. I've been complaining, a complaining griper whenever you get home. Lynn continued, you probably feel like you have to toss a few pounds of raw meat in front of the door before it's safe to enter. No wonder you're late. Who would want to put up with that? You're right. I really don't look forward to your resentment, Tom responded, and I'm sure it makes me avoid you. The other day, I was going to be 10 minutes late, and when I thought about facing your wrath, I figured I might as well make it 30 minutes, since I know you'd be angry anyways. So I stopped by the drugstore to pick up some film. Lynn nodded. I'm going to try to be less angry and more caring and approachable, even when you're late. I may not do it well, and I'll need your help here, but I really don't want to be a shrew. Also, it's not just my attitude that I'll be changing. My actions will be changing, too. I love you, and I want you to be with me and the kids for dinner. But if you can't get here on time, I'll have your dinner put away in the fridge. You can reheat it yourself whenever you get in. Tom didn't like this last part. Lynn, you know I hate to make my own dinner. After a 10-hour day, I want to sit down to a prepared meal. I know you do, and I want that for you too, but it won't happen unless you can rearrange things to get here when the rest of us eat. The next few days, Tom ate a lot of microwave dinners from the Tupperware containers. Finally, he structured the end of his day to get home on time, and Lynn's important family time became a reality. When Lynn asked Tom why he had changed it, he said, Well, I guess it was your two-point plan. First, you were a lot nicer to me, and I felt more like coming home. And second, I just hate reheating dinner. Whose problem is it anyways? Lynn solved a small but chronic marriage problem by making an important shift in her attitude. She stopped trying to change Tom, and she started making changes in herself. Lynn moved from seeing the problem as Tom's lateness to seeing it as her unhappiness with Tom's lateness. This opened the door to things she could control. When you cease to blame your spouse and own the problem as yours, you are then empowered to make changes to solve your problem. To do this, Lynn set a couple of limits on herself. First, she reigned in her impulse to attack, to attack Tom for his tardiness. This was not easy as she was clearly right and he was clearly wrong. She would, ha she would have been justified in confronting him at every infraction, but she placed a boundary on her anger since it wasn't solving the problem. Second, Lynn set a limit on her enabling of Tom. She realized that she was making it easier for him to be irresponsible, so she said no to her desire to protect him from his dreaded dinner reheating. These two changes made a difference for both partners. The chapter that no one wants to read. If you browsed through the table of contents of this book, chances are this was not the first chapter that you turned to. Nobody wants to read this chapter. We all want to find ways to say no to our spouses rather than to ourselves. Yet the ideas in this chapter may be the only hope for your marriage to develop a healthy set of boundaries. Boundaries in marriage is not the same as boundaries on your spouse. This book is not about changing, fixing, or making your spouse do anything. It is about bringing boundaries into the relationship to provide a context in which both mates can grow. Thus, more often than not, the first boundaries we set in marriage are with ourselves. We deny ourselves certain freedoms to say or do whatever we'd like in order to achieve a higher purpose. 
like Lynn, we learn to restrict ourselves from confronting someone when that has proven futile. As the Bible teaches, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Many spouses use the concept of boundaries to go on the hunt to make their mate change his ways. Instead of a marriage problem, they see a spouse problem. We aren't denying a spouse's responsibility for problems. However, blaming one's spouse oversimplifies the issue and often doesn't solve the problem. The reality of boundaries in marriage is that no matter what the issue in your marriage, you need to take the initiative to solve it. You, have, you may have a spouse who is chronically late like Tom, who is financially irresponsible, who withdraws and avoids relationship, who becomes angry, or who attempts to control you. Though you may share no blame in creating these problems, you probably need to take some initiative in solving them. This often seems unfair to people. They will say, why should I have to solve a problem that I didn't cause? This is a legitimate question. However, the question exposes a demand for fairness that will never exist in a fallen world. Such a question keeps people protesting and complaining while still mired in the problem. God sees it another way. He says that no matter who causes the problem, we are to take steps to solve it. If our brother has something against us, we are to go to him. And at the same time, if our brother sins against us, we are to go to him. Matthew 5, 23-24 and Matthew 18, 15. Fault is irrelevant. We need to work to resolve the problem. God works this way also. He saw our lost state and the problems we had caused ourselves and took the first step of sending his son to die to reconcile a problem that was never his. As the old song goes, we owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Removing the plank. Another reason we need to look first at our own boundaries on ourselves is that more often than not, we aren't blameless. Typically, spouses are performing a dance they don't even talk about. But the dance perpetuates the problem and generally involves a payoff for the innocent spouse. For example, Molly continually overdrew the checking account. She would get in a rush and lose track of checks. The inevitable, inevitable service charge would show up on the statement and Scott would hit the roof about her responsibility. Molly would be hurt and withdraw. She would try to keep better accounts for a few days and then lose track again. When I asked Scott why he didn't close the account or make Molly responsible for the service charges, he said, it wouldn't do any good. However, as we talked, I discovered that Scott was one of those people who always becomes angry with irresponsible people. Much of his conversation revolved around how unreliable politicians, co-workers, the kids, and Molly were. He prided himself on being dependable. It finally came out that Scott needed Molly to stay irresponsible so that he could continue his protest against all those irresponsible people in life. Were she to get her financial act together, he couldn't stay as angry about the human race, so he sabotaged any real attempts to help her learn from the consequences. Blowing up at her made him feel less helpless. Once Scott realized this, he understood that underneath his anger was a fear about things beyond his control. He talked about his fears and his sadness that he couldn't change people and about the person that he would like to change, Molly. And he and she agreed on a successful plan for her to become more responsible with the checking account. The innocent spouse needs to see what part, active or passive, he plays in the problem. Jesus called this the plank in our eyes. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 7, 5. This plank may be some attitude or emotion that we aren't aware of that encourages the problem to continue. 
Once Scott dealt with the plank of defensive anger, he could be more mature with Molly. Taking ownership of our lives. An important aspect of setting boundaries with ourselves is that of taking ownership of our lives. If we need to take responsibility for our hearts, our loves, our time, and our talents, we are to own our lives and live in God's light, growing up and maturing our character along the way. Speaking the truth in love, he will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Ephesians 4.15 This is our job and no one else's. However, this is not as easy as it sounds. We are more concerned about the person who is making us crazy or miserable than we are about the state of our own souls. Blaming someone else shifts the light of truth from us to someone else. We come by this trait honestly. Adam and Eve, as we saw earlier, both blamed someone else for their own feelings from Genesis 3.11-13. When we neglect setting boundaries with ourselves and focus instead on setting boundaries with those we think sorely need limits, we have limited our own spiritual growth. As in any process, spiritual growth proceeds to the level that we invest in it. When we only invest in changing someone else, they get the benefit of our efforts, but the important work we have to do has been neglected. For example, you may have the following reactions to your spouse. Withdraw from his anger. Resentment at his irresponsibility. Letting go of your responsibilities due to his inattention. Becoming self-centered out of his self-centeredness. Let's assume your spouse is all of these things. <clears throat> Angry, irresponsible, inattentive, and self-centered. You will not grow if you continue to react to his sins. This is not seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. Matthew 6.33 It is seeking satisfaction from another person. <clears throat> we must become more deeply concerned about our own issues than our spouses. We cannot overstate the importance of this idea. One of the most frightening facts in existence is that God will someday call us to account for our lives here on earth. For we must appear all before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 At that meeting, we will not be able to blame, hide behind, or deflect at the sins and problems of our spouse. It will be a one-on-one -on -one conversation with God. Boundaries with yourself are a much bigger issue than boundaries in your marriage. <clears throat> in the end, while we are only partly responsible for growing our marriages, we are completely responsible to God for developing our very souls. You are responsible for half of your marriage and all of your soul. Boundaries on yourself are between you and God. Being the good spouse. Another aspect of setting limits with ourselves in marriage is the difficulty that comes in being the good spouse. In many marriages, one mate is more obviously selfish, irresponsible, withdrawn, or controlling. The other is perceived as the suffering saint, and people wonder how he tolerates the pain of living with such a problem. This often makes it hard for the good spouse to set appropriate boundaries for himself. There are a number of reasons for this. First, the suffering spouse may focus more on his spouse's problems than on his own. The more apparent the flaws, the more friends will talk about the flaws of the spouse rather than the problems of the sufferer. A friend of mine was devastated when his wife left him, but it took him years to finally see how his own people-pleasing behavior led to her leaving. All his friends helped to keep him away from this awareness by constantly criticizing the abandoning spouse. They would tell him how selfish she was to leave a loving, nice person like you. What they would not tell him, and what he needed to hear, was she certainly was selfish. 
but you were indirect, passive, and withheld your feelings from her. Second, the good spouse often feels helpless in the relationship. She has tried to love better and more, yet the problem continues, because being good generally means being caring and compassionate. He doesn't have access to other helpful tools such as trustfulness, honesty, limits, and consequences. Third, the good spouse can easily take a morally superior position towards his spouse. Since his contributions to the problem may not be as obvious, he may think, I'm not capable of being as destructive as my mate. This is a dangerous position to take. We are all capable of just about anything due to our our own sinful nature, Romans 3.10-18. We need to be careful about this, so if you are thinking... If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Anytime we focus on our goodness, we turn our hearts away from our need for love and forgiveness. Living by the same rules We need to analyze our need for limits because we need to submit ourselves to the same rules we want our partner to submit to. Submitting the boundary process is a great equalizer in marriage and keeps both spouse in a mutual relationship instead of in a one-up or one-down one. Both need to accept and respect the limits of the other. No one plays God, doing what he wants, and expecting the other to comply. When one mate protests her spouse's disorganization, yet will not look at her own controlling tendencies, she stands little chance of seeing him change. She is being a hypocrite in that she is demanding of him what she isn't doing herself. Sooner or later, this hypocrisy will break down any good influence on the other spouse. A couple I know struggled with the husband's tendency to withdraw if he thought his wife was not hearing him. She, in turn, would become angry that he is isolating himself. They argued about this for a long time, and finally, the next time he withdrew, she said to him, Tell me what I did to hurt you. He broke down crying, thereby moving out of isolation. When he saw her set limits on her own anger and frustration, and instead show concern about his hurt, he moved back into a relationship with her. Freeing your spouse by setting limits with yourself. When you set limits on yourself, you can create an environment in which your spouse can become free to choose and grow. It is tempting to try to change your spouse. Controlling, nagging, complying to seek approval, and blaming are all futile in helping your spouse to grow. Your spouse will only react to your control. He won't experience his loneliness, need for love, gratitude, healthy guilt, or the consequences of his action. He'll be more concerned with staying free of your attempts to change him, or even with retaliating to show you how it feels to be him. For example, Brian suffered from the Peter Pan syndrome. He didn't want to grow up. He was into good times and fun and tried to stay away from boring tasks and responsibilities. As you can imagine, he had many career and financial problems. Andy, his wife, felt saddled with Brian's burden, so she tried to nag him into growing up and into feeling guilty. She would tell him, don't you realize what you're doing to me? After all I've done for you and this is how you treat me? These statements were similar to what Brian's mother would say when he was irresponsible as a child. With mom, he would feel a momentary guilt and then do whatever he could to escape her. And he did the same with Andy. The more she protested and the further Brian ran, feeling the same smothering guilt that had been so difficult for him as a child. Finally, Andy set limits on her attempt to control Brian. She became loving and caring towards him without being critical and she set firm limits on his job and money problems. She asked a financial counselor at their church for help. Brian lost some rights to his money for a while until he proved himself more mature. He changed because Andy freed him by limiting her nagging. Before that, Brian had only been reacting to Andy's 
slash mother. Now, Brian became free to experience her love, which he desperately needed, and he became, became free to experience the pain of loss of money and being with a financial counselor who set up accountability structure from which he couldn't run, and he began growing up. You cannot make your spouse grow up. That is between him and God, but you can make it easier for him to experience the love and limits that he needs. When he faces the consequences of his immaturity, he stands a better chance of changing if he faces, than if he faces your nagging and hounding. Become truthful, not controlling. In the rest of this chapter, we'll deal with two major areas in which we need to set boundaries for ourselves in marriage. The first is our own character issues, and the second is how we relate to our spouses. Setting boundaries with our own character. Liz and Greg are friends of mine. Liz illustrates the idea of setting boundaries on our own character as well as anyone I know. Her marriage to Greg is less than satisfying. He's a good person, but he's self-absorbed and uninterested in personal growth. He will listen to Liz talk about a seminar she has been going to or page through a book she wants him to read, but that's about it. Greg's disinterest in personal growth has been a loss for Liz over the years of their marriage. She had wanted to pair with someone who seeks after God and wants to continue to grow as she does. However, she has adapted to the holes in her marriage. While she loves her husband and invests her life together, she also has deep, regular contact with others who are into growth. She has stayed connected to these people for many years. What Liz does that has so impressed me is that on this regular basis she will ask Greg, what do you see me doing that hurts or bothers you? And whatever Greg says, Liz will take it to heart. If he mentions a truly troublesome part of her character, Liz will work on changing and maturing that part of her. If she takes initiative to humble herself to a husband who, as of yet, has never asked her the same question, what do you see me doing that hurts or bothers you? Liz has no hidden agenda with Greg, such as, I'll change for you if you'll change for me. She simply wants to be what God intended her to be, and she believes Greg is a source of good insight into the weakness that she needs to address. Whether or not Greg ever gets curious about his own growth is irrelevant to her own journey, though she deeply desires and prays for this to happen. The highest calling of a spouse is the call to love, just as it is the highest calling of our faith, loving God and each other. Matthew 22, verse 37-40 Love means doing what you can for your spouse. And setting boundaries on your own character, on your own character weaknesses is one of the most loving things you can do in your marriage. When you grow, you become more tender, more empathic, and yet more honest and firm in your convictions. You become someone who is better to live with. It always saddens me to see a person get into the spiritual growth process and immediately alienate her spouse with her intrusiveness, judgmentalism, and self-centeredness. The spouse of someone who is growing spiritually should be better off, not worse off. Process, not perfection. When we look at our own character issues, we cannot will ourselves to maturity. We don't have the power to change our spouse, nor can we change our destructive behaviors and attitudes by just saying no. As the Bible teaches, we are unable to change ourselves in and of ourselves. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Romans 7.15 However, we do have some power and choices. We can choose to tell the truth about our faults. We can choose to bring those faults into the light of a relationship. We can choose to repent of them and to work them out and mature them. Setting limits on ourselves sometimes simply involves taking troublesome emotion, behavior, or attitude to a supportive relationship instead of acting on it.
Here are some character issues in our own lives on which we can set limits. Playing God. By human nature, we try to play God instead of seeking Him. We need to continually own this worst and most hurtful aspect of our character. By playing God, we miss the mark in loving, being responsible, and caring about the welfare of our spouse. Submit this part of yourself to God's authority. Let Him know that the desire to play God is larger than your power to stop it, and ask for His help. Stay connected to the life of God and His people. Practice the spiritual disciplines of worship, prayer, fellowship, and scripture reading. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Romans 6.13 As you stay in God's love, His presence in your life limits sin. Because you love Him, you want to obey Him. John 14.23 Denial When we do not admit the truth about who we are, we give our spouse no one with whom to connect. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1-8 What we deny about ourselves is absent from love. If, for example, you deny your struggle with insecurity by attempting to be strong, your spouse cannot love and have compassion for your insecure parts. This impoverishes the marriage bond and prevents a deeper connection with your spouse. Learn to set limits on your, on your bent toward denying who you are. The opposite of denial is confession or agreeing with the truth, and most likely your mate knows the truth anyways. Work on your tendency to deny and rationalize your failure, weakness, selfishness, or hurtfulness. When you confess who you are, you are being emotionally present with your spouse. Not only that, but you are also allowing your mate to minister to the vulnerable parts of you. So many husbands and wives I've talked to over the years have been quite surprised at the warm reception they received from their mates when they came out of denial. Their spouses understood the great risk their partner took to admit their weaknesses, and they were compassionate and supportive. Remember that God has also placed inside your spouse a desire to live and grow in the light of his love. He has set eternity in her heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Help stir that part to life with your own openness. Withdraw from relationships. Failing to make and keep emotional connections is a serious character issue. One or both spouses pull away and avoid being open and vulnerable with the other. There are numerous reasons for this. Some people have basic trust injuries. Others fear that the relationship will control or hurt them. And still others can only feel free to set limits by cutting off the relationship itself. Whatever the cause, emotional isolation withdraws the most basic part of ourselves from the source of life, relatedness to God and others. Sometimes withdrawal manifests itself in the marriage as emotional absence. A wife will report to her husband that is there but not there. In other cases, one spouse will be able to give love and support, but it will but will be unable to receive it. In still other cases, the spouse can stay connected at some level. However, when the connection becomes deeper and more emotional, he disengages. Though the ideal of marriage is that all parts of one spouse connect to all parts of the other, most couples struggle with their tendency to withdraw their hearts from each other. Withdrawal makes them feel safer and more protected. However, when they allow withdrawal to continue unchecked, they can condemn their union to slow starvation. Marriage requires love to sustain itself. If you find yourself enticed by withdrawal and avoidance, you can do the following to help set boundaries on this tendency. Enlist the aid of your spouse. Ask her to let you know when she notices you pulling away. Ask her how it affects her. Does it hurt her? Make her lonely? Finding out how your avoidance influences others is a way to limit your disconnection. Discover why you withdraw. 
You could fear rejection, being controlled, or being judged. You could be punishing your spouse for hurting you. Understanding the reasons can help you set limits on your behavior. Say no to your tendency to avoid relationships and expose yourself to others who can help you connect. Your responsibility. Ever since the fall, we have protested the reality that our lives are our problem and no one else's. All of us desire to either have someone else take responsibility for us or to avoid the consequences of our actions, and this is how children and immature adults go through life. They argue that it's not fair, that they have to to shoulder their own burdens. They drive their spouses crazy trying to shrink their jobs in life. Some of us have more difficulty with taking responsibility than others do. For example, you may leave certain projects, chores, or financial tasks undone at work or in your marriage for someone else to finish up. Or you may argue when others say no to you. The inability to accept another's no indicates a difficulty in taking ownership of your own disappointment and sadness and a struggle to allowing others freedom. If you have problems with responsibility, here's what you can do to help. If you don't think you have a problem here, ask your spouse in the off chance that you may. First, submit yourself to safe people who can confront you on your irresponsibility. For example, I have a friend who's unconventional. She starts things and doesn't finish them. She forgets lunch dates. She keeps people waiting. She regularly asks her friends, I want you to tell me when I bug you with my flakiness. It really helps me to change. And they do. Second, accept both consequences and feedback for your problem. Tell others to stop enabling you and, for example, to leave for the party without you if you're late. Realize that the consequences will help you to structure your life better. Third, tell your spouse that his silence and or nagging aren't helping you. Ask him to love you, but at the same time to provide limits for you when you don't set them on yourself. Self-centeredness. Nothing is more natural than to think more of our own situation than another's. Thinking that the sun rises and sets on only on us is one of the most destructive marriage-busting character issues. Marriage cannot be successfully navigated without our giving more of ourselves than we are comfortable giving. Yet self-absorbed people often attempt to live as a single person within marriage, thinking they can get what is important to them and still pull off the relationship. The result is that the spouse feels like an object, or feels that her own thoughts and feelings aren't valued. The structure of marriage itself is anti-selfish. Marriage exposes our weakness and failings to the other person. It shows us the limits to our goodness. It takes away the sense that everything revolves around us, and not addressing our own egocentrism egocentrism can hurt. A couple I know had to work on the issue. When their children were in elementary and junior high school, the husband had tremendous struggles when he would arrive home at the end of his workday. He had always dreamed of coming home, having his wife and kids run to the door to greet him, and sitting in the kitchen talking about his day. In reality, everyone was happy to see him, but no one had jumped up to meet him. They sat there and said, hi dad, and whatever was happening when he walked through the door wasn't automatically put on hold while he reviewed his day. He had to work hard to avoid blaming them and withdrawing from the family as he gave up on his unrealistic dreams. Here are some ideas to help set boundaries on your self-centeredness. Ask your spouse to tell you when he doesn't feel that things are mutual between you, or if he thinks that he is to constantly see reality your way. Learn to let go of the demand to be perfect or special. Accept instead being loved for the real you, warts and all. And say no to the urge to be good, 
and learn the skills of forgiveness and grief. Forgiveness and grief will help you accept the reality of who you are and who your spouse is. Judgmentalism. Many spouses struggle with judging, criticizing, and condemning others. They have difficulty accepting differences in others and see the differences as black and white. And they often misread a person's actions out of a need to be loved and accepted. They hate both the sin and the sinner. Nothing kills love in a marriage more than judgmentalism. Excuse me. When you live with a judge, you are always on trial. This creates an atmosphere of fear as the judged spouse walks on eggshells to avoid the wrath to come. Love cannot grow in a climate of fear. There is no fear in love. Fear has to do with punishment. 1 John 4.18 A spouse's love can grow if she knows the consequences for her actions. and This is the loving discipline of growth. But the fear of punishment is very different. Her very soul and character are tried and condemned and then cast out of the relationship. If you have the judge role in your marriage, these tasks will help you grow out of this position. Ask for feedback on how your attitude hurts those you love. Judgmental people are often surprised at how wounded they can be. Become aware of your own attacking conscience. Most judging types have a very strict internal judge that punishes them. Learn to receive compassion and forgiveness from God and others for your own failings. This can help soften the conscience. And then develop compassion for the faults of others. Remember that we are all lost without God's help. The above character issues can be major sources of distance and disharmony in marriage. Yet, when you own them, set limits on their hurtfulness, and submit them to God's process of growth, love can flourish. Boundaries on our attempts to control. All of the aspects of ourselves we need to set limits on, our tendency to control our spouse, is probably the most crucial. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we have tried to run each other's lives. The strategies, manipulations, and tactics spouses employ to change their mate are endless. And if there is any surefire way to destroy trust and love, control is it. We must give our love freely. We may not say, I will love you if you do this or that. As the Bible teaches, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 When we feel controlled, freedom disappears and love is threatened. Other control is the antithesis of having boundaries in marriage. Boundaries relinquish other control for self-control. Galatians 5.23 Boundaries preserve the freedom of one's spouse without at the same time enabling the irresponsibility of that spouse. How can you determine if someone is attempting control? Well, here are several indicators. First, not respecting the other's no. The husband will make several attempts to change the decision of his spouse and regard her feelings. Punishing a wrong choice. When the husband chooses to do something the wife doesn't like, the wife will act out, act put out or like a victim, or she will accuse her husband of not being loving or caring. Not valuing freedom. The husband will be more interested in his wife's making the right decision than in her free, heartfelt choice. And bad results. The wife who is being controlled will be resentful, act out, or retaliate. God is the only one who could justifiably control our decisions, and yet he refrains from doing so. He gives us freedom to choose, and he weeps when our choices lead to ruin. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those those sent to you, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, 
but you were not willing. Matthew 23, 37. God places such a high premium on our freedom that he shies away from forcing us to do things that would benefit us. He understands that we will never learn to love or respond to him without that costly freedom. In this section, we will shed light on the ways we attempt to control our partners, and we will also provide ways to set boundaries on this unfortunate tendency. Control comes in different flavors. Connor felt a sense of deja vu. He had had this argument so many times with Stacy that he could almost predict her lines. As usual, it started with a small thing that mushroomed. Connor had grudgingly agreed to go to the opera with Stacy a few weeks earlier. He didn't enjoy opera, but she had insisted. In the back of his mind, however, Connor kept a little scoreboard. On it, he had logged the opera date as a point of leverage for his way to an event that he wanted to go to. A friend offered Connor tickets to a pro baseball game and eagerly anticipated going. However, Stacy reminded him that her mom was coming for a long-planned visit on that day. Connor reminded Stacy about this opera sacrifice. Stacy stood firm. Then he exploded, saying, This is the payment I get for all I do for you. How could you be so ungrateful? At this, Stacy collapsed in tears. Even though she had experienced Connor's tantrums many times, she sobbed, Why did you ever marry me if you want to hurt me so much? With that, she ran upstairs. Immediately feeling guilty over his hurtfulness, Connor followed his wife upstairs. He finally calmed her down and promised that he would be at home when her mom came over. Both Connor and Stacy tried to take freedom from each other, which is the essence of control. He still felt resentful inside, but his guilt covered it up for now. Connor's blow-up was an aggressive way to intimidate Stacy into changing her mind and a way to punish her for not keeping the score between them even. Stacy's breakdown was a more indirect way to punish Connor for his anger and also a means of getting him to change his mind. Neither one valued the free choices of his or her spouse. Let us look at some of the ways that, like Connor and Stacy, couples attempt to control each other. Guilt. Guilt messages are intended to make our spouse feel responsible for our welfare. In other words, guilt controls by creating the impression that our spouse's freedom injures us. By choosing differently from us, our spouse has thus been unloving. Statements such as, if you only really loved me, or how could you be so selfish, and wounded silences convey the message. Stacy's breakdown illustrates the guilt message. Anger. Often when one spouse wants something that the other doesn't, the disappointed mate will become angry. Anger is our basic protest against the fact that we are not God and that we cannot control reality. Anger can be indirect, as in Connor's tantrum. It can be covert, as in passive-aggressive behaviors or sarcastic remarks. It can involve threats or retaliation. It can also, in extreme situations, become dangerous, as in abusive marriages. Persistent assault on the spouse's boundary. One person will say no, and then the, the spouse will make the attempt after attempt to change the other's mind. Like a strong-willed door-to-door salesperson, the spouse will argue, wheedle, and plead until the other one has been worn down. Like a child who has learned to keep asking until he hears the answer he wants, the spouse refuses to live at the boundary of the other. Withholding love. Of all the ways that we attempt to control, withholding love may be the most powerful. When one spouse disagrees or the other disconnects emotionally until the spouse changes to suit her. This is so powerful because God created us to need love and connection as our source of life. When someone withdraws from us, we are without the basis of existence. It puts extreme pressure on us to do anything to connect with the one that we love. 
submitting to boundaries on our control. The the spouse who truly loves his mate and wants her to grow spiritually will at some point desire to give up these attempts to control. He will be willing to relinquish these strategies in favor of granting freedom and love. Here are some ways that you can set limits on your controlling attempts. Realize the cost of other control. The cost of other control is that you might get external compliance but lose your spouse's heart. Guilt, anger, assaults, and withholding all negate freedom and love. The spouse will go along but will often be resentful or emotionally absent. Set limits on your desire for other control as you place a higher value on love. Ask your spouse to let you know how your control affects him. Since marriage is, at its core, a bond of empathy, your mate's feelings are important to you. Often, when the controlled spouse lets the controlling spouse know how hurtful and distant the attempts make him, the controlling spouse feels compassion for the pain and is able to better set limits on the control. Experience your own helplessness to change your spouse. No matter how much you would like to to believe the opposite, your spouse will not change her decisions, opinions, or feelings until she is ready to. You may need to realize that you live with someone whom you can't make do the right thing. This helplessness is often a very painful emotion. Angry control moves may give us the illusion that we have the power over our spouse that we do not have. Accepting helplessness hurts, but it's where reality lies. Learn to grieve. Grief helps us to accept the truth and to let go of things that we can't change or have. When you allow your spouse freedom, you will often feel loss and sadness about losing what you desired from him. But allowing yourself to feel this grief frees you to accept reality and find new ways to adapt to your marriage. Work through dependency issues. If your spouse is the only person through whom you can get needs met, you will have a bent toward controlling him. Find your sources of love, approval, truth, or forgiveness that include your mate, but are not limited to him. For example, you may have a need for recognition of the good things you accomplish. Don't expect your spouse to provide all of the kudos. Use your friends to meet this need as well. When you have other places to get your needs met, you are better able to give your spouse freedom. Be a separate person with your spouse. Sometimes one mate will define herself by her mate and not by her own individual soul. Then, when your spouse disagrees or makes a different decision, she personalizes the difference as an attack against her. For example, a husband will become angry with his wife for something. She will feel that he hates her and will lash back to protect herself. Her inability to be separate from her husband's feelings is the problem. As you become more defined by your own boundaries, you will experience your mate's feelings and decisions as having more to do with him than you, and this will free you to allow him to be free. Value your spouse's freedom as you want your freedom valued. Jesus' golden rule of doing to others as you would have them do to you, Matthew 7:12, is the basis for how spouses are to treat each other. Remember how it felt the last time someone attacked you for your freedom to choose and therefore have compassion on your spouse's choices. Set boundaries with your spouse instead of controlling him. Often a wife will resort to control strategies because she feels unable to say no or be free with her husband. She may be afraid of her partner's reactions and may feel she can't protect herself. Control becomes a substitute for establishing boundaries of self-control with her spouse. As you set appropriate limits, you can feel safe and give up controlling your partner. As you can see, marriage has more to do with bringing your own self 
under the control of God and his principles than it does with controlling your spouse. However, as you relinquish control of your partner, you are able to better love him, protect your own freedom, and provide a context for both of you to grow. In the next chapter, we will show you how important it is for you to be a separate person from your spouse. Ironically, being an individual is the key to becoming one with your mate.